Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. But I'm going to pray for us just once more before we dive into God's word together. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have brought us together as your church. I thank you that uh, in coming to this place, uh, we don't get to hear the words of men, but we get to hear the word of God. The word of God that you've given us in scripture, that you've trusted to your church, and that has power to change hearts, to know you, and to love you, and to tell others about you. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. So I have something to share with you guys today uh, that might be a betrayal of all of the secrets of men, but I'm going betr- to do it anyway and face the consequences. And that is there's a weird thing that happens for some, perhaps even most men, when they walk into a social space. And that's that they look around and they get a survey of the other guys that are in there and they begin to like establish a rank. Like who, who could I beat in a game of Desert Island? Who could I take in hand-to-hand, no rules combat? Who can I outwit in like a game of smarts? And it goes even down to my son who was in kindergarten this year. And I asked him, I said, hey, Owen, are you, he's a tall kid. And I said, are you the tallest kid in your class? And he didn't just say yes or no. He provided for me a detailed list of the top five to ten five to six-year-olds in his class as to where they rank and where he falls in that rank. And the truth is, we all like to measure up to something. There's always some standard, real or not, that we're comparing ourselves to. It could be uh, the amount of money we make, our job approval rankings. It could be how many children you've birthed, the style of your house or of your clothes. We want something that we can count ourselves against, that we can measure who we are and what it is that we're doing. We've been working now for a number of weeks through a book of the Bible called Ephesians, which is a letter written by Paul to a church in what's now modern-day Turkey and some other churches in that area. And for those of you who have been studying the book along with us, this book is split very perfectly into halves. Chapters 1 through 3, in it Paul unveils God's whole plan for all of human history. And in this we see three things. We see first that God's plan for all of human history is to redeem for himself a church through Jesus Christ. And then what he does is he defines uh, the church. What, who is the church? What is the composition of the church? Well, the church is not a specific ethnicity. The church is anyone and everyone who comes to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he also talks about the goal of the church. What's the goal of the church? He says the end goal of the church is to manifest God's wisdom and God's glory through Jesus Christ. That is God's plan, that is the composition of the church, and that is the end goal of the church. And that constitutes what was the first half of the book of Ephesians. And today we are starting the second half of the book of Ephesians. And in this, this is where Paul now begins to speak more clearly to this church And begins to interact with what it looks like to be a church that Jesus and that grace and grace alone has made. How should you as a Christian and how should we as the church measure up to the miracle of what Jesus has done in our salvation? What does it look like and what is the standard that we compare ourselves to? And we know this because look at how he opens up his passage today in verse 1. I therefore... A prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so Paul is taking all of the grace that came in chapters 1 through 3, and he's saying because of that, this is how you ought to live. You ought to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so as we're looking at Ephesians, Paul wants us to know two things. He wants us to know how we were brought into God's church, and then he wants us to know how we are to act as part of God's church. And this is really important for us to understand specifically here at Sovereign Hope because we have a lot of airtime, a lot of gathering time, a lot of internet presence dedicated to the building fund that we're in. And while we would never say it explicitly, it can perhaps be an implicit drift of our heart where the standard that we measure ourselves up to and the goal of ministry is simply to have a building. God cares about the church, God loves the church, and so we want to care for the church by having, giving the church a permanent building. And so subtly it can happen to say, if we have a building, then we can do ministry. If we have a building, 
then we will measure up to the standard of what a church is called to do. But Paul is raising our eyes from this and setting it on what is biblical. Paul wants us, Paul wants you to ask questions of how is it that we are to biblically do what God has called the church to do? How is it that we measure our faithfulness as a church? And what specifically is the gospel ministry that we participate in when we gather together here on Sunday mornings or in our community groups or at our fundraisers, whatever it is we're doing? And more importantly, Paul asks lots of rhetorical questions, is what does this mean for you? As an individual, why is this important? And why has Jesus called us to a church of this nature? And you see, in other places, the external mission of the church is clearly defined. Jesus does this at the end of Matthew. We see this great commission where Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. What we like to say, it's that call to go out and preach the gospel and to grow up by teaching what is in the gospel. But here in Ephesians, Paul is now focusing more specifically on the internal ministry of the church which is actually the stepping stone for all external ministry. It's why when we talk about our goals as sovereign hope, we start with a healthy church, and then we go to a miserable church, and then ascending church, because it all grows out of where we start. It grows out of how we understand what God has called us to do at the most basic level. And what we're going to see today is Paul is going to show us the measure of the church by providing for us three truths which practically shape your life as part of God's church. Three truths that have a practical bearing on what we do and why we have been saved by Jesus. And what we're going to see today is this, is that the church is united in salvation, diverse in gifts, and dependent in ministry. United in salvation, diverse in gifts, and dependent in ministry. And so we're going to come back and look at all three of those, so don't panic writing them down right now. And we're going to start with our first point, which is united in salvation. Read with me uh, Ephesians 4, verses one Six. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, so Paul is in a Roman prison while he's writing to this church he knew, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, we always talk about good Bible study habits when you're reading God's word is to listen to what words are repeated. There are two words that Paul is kind of rhythmically uh, emphasizing in this text. And the first is the word call. We saw this in verse 1 where Paul says, I urge you to, to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In verse 4, he repeats it again, just as you were called to the one hope which belongs to your call. And what's interesting is one of the primary ways that the New Testament writers talk about our salvation is in terms of a call. And there's something important when we think about that calling language. Because we always interact with a call. We answer a call, at least you did when people actually called you. You follow calls. It demands something from us. It pulls us into something that is distant from us. And in 1 Peter, the apostle Peter is describing our salvation. And he describes it as this. He says that your salvation is Jesus calling you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Also, the Greek word for church uh, which means gathering, shares a same root with the Greek word called. And so not only is the church a gathering, but it is specifically a gathering of called out ones, those who have been called out by Jesus Christ, those who are following the voice of another. And you see, the first, the, one of the primary ways of which we encounter salvation is we encounter it as a call to come and follow Jesus. And we like the idea, we like being called, as nervous as it makes us these days. We see that when you accept the call of Jesus, you lay down your ability to define what that call looks like. When Jesus calls you, it is Jesus who dictates what it looks like to follow that calling. 
It is Jesus who dictates what it looks like to be a disciple. It is Jesus who dictates what life of the church looks like. He provides the measuring stick that we compare ourselves to by grace. It is by grace we are brought into this church, and it is by grace we assess ourselves inside of the church. And that's the first word, but wrapped up in this call is a togetherness that Paul is emphasizing with his other word. And this is one that probably stood out to us more than the first, and that's the word one. It's this rhythm, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. Now, there are times where biblical writers, when they're emphasizing the oneness of faith here, it's an exclusive oneness. Like there is one way to God. There is one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is one God who can save, and it is not Buddha, and it is not Allah. It is Jesus Christ. And that is true, and Paul Paul affirms all of that exclusivity. It is Jesus and only Jesus who saves. But Paul is not using one here in an exclusive sense. Instead, he's using it in an inclusive sense, so as to say, everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ, everyone to whom all of the grace of Ephesians 1 through 3 is applied by faith, you share in everything together. You share one Lord, one faith, one call, one baptism, one spirit, one life together. In other words, the call of Christ not only calls us to himself, but it calls us also to other believers. It calls us to live a life together as God's church. And this is something that Paul has made really abundantly clear in the first three chapters of the book, is that God has distinctly designed it So that those people who are saved by Jesus are gathered together as real people in real places as local churches. Life together in God's church isn't some add-on for believers who happen to be more social than others. The introverted believers get a pass and get to watch football on Sundays. And the social ones get to come to church and do things together. It's not an add-on. What Paul is saying repeatedly through Ephesians is that the life of the church, of the gathering, of the called out ones is essential to understanding and experiencing the joy of your salvation. And we see how essential this is with the language Paul assumes. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. But look at what he assumes. What does it look like to walk out this salvation? Look again at verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so Paul here provides three characteristic measures of those who have experienced the grace of Jesus. Humility, gentleness, and patience. And what's interesting is each of these assumes a closeness to one another. It assumes other people. And Paul makes this very clear because he defines patience this way. It's as if he says there at the end of chapter or verse 3, he says, well, what do I mean by patience? I mean this, bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. My guess is if we were to take a poll Most of us in here would consider ourselves to be relatively patient people. But the patience that Paul is describing here is not low-hanging patience that we can often pat ourselves on the back for. Like, I can be patient in waiting for my Amazon order to get here. I understand it takes time. It takes a whole one to two business days for Prime members. I can wait for that. Or maybe you're from a generation where things naturally took longer. And it's okay for you to slow down and for you to wait for your products to get here, to wait for your mail, or to wait forever at a roundabout. Maybe that's just what you do. But this is not the type of patience that Paul is talking about here. It's easy to wait on things. It's more difficult to bear with people. And that's the distinction that Paul is getting at here. Patience is not this impersonal detachment. Patience is bearing with one another in love. I understand, I get it, that it could take two to four days for me to get my package. But sometimes I wrestle with impatience that the guy I'm discipling doesn't understand how hard it is to make time to read the Bible. 
it frustrates me that he doesn't see it as a priority. And I get more frustrated with that than I do with this because it involves a real person. Involves a relationship. But patience as defined by Paul is exactly this. Patience which assumes that you will be challenged by these people to be impatient. That they will press up against you in ways that irritate us, that challenges our pride, that challenges our gentleness. And you see, too quickly, we often write off those who struggle where we don't or who are weak where we are strong. And we say, I don't need to bear with this. You're different. You're weak. I'm strong. I don't understand how this is difficult for you. It seems the most easy thing for me to do. And we write them off. But life in God's church will always challenge your patience. Because there will always be people from different stages of life inside of God's church. Different stages of spiritual maturity. Different parts of our walk with God. And what's to be understood here, and I want you guys to understand this. We talk a lot about growing up as a church and our ability to make disciples both inside the church and outside the church. If we are a church committed to evangelism, our patience is going to be challenged all the more. Because we are going to see people by amazing bounds of grace come into faith in Jesus Christ and they're learning how to walk all over again. Our church needs to be lined with newspapers because new believers make accidents. And that's okay. And we need to understand that that's actually a mark of health. In fact, Paul is assuming here that if you're in a church that doesn't challenge your patience at all, it's probably not a church you should be at. There can be a time where the church looks so remarkably like you that it might look remarkably less like Christ. The church is meant to be diverse. That's what we've seen all through the first three chapters. The church is different than you, but it includes you. And we need to know this because if we're careful, we can encounter these challenges to our pride, to our gentleness, and to our patience. And we can respond in one of three ways, all of which are unhelpful. The first is that we bounce from church to church, trying to find a church that meets our personal preferences in a specific way. To have a consumeristic idea of what churches are. And maybe if you're in the mood for tacos, you go to one church. If you're in the mood for, for bur burritos, <laughs> I guess I'm only thinking in terms of Mexican this morning. Um, if you want burritos, if you want taquitos, if you want chalupas, you pick a different church. Or it could be that you uh, glide into church right as our countdown clock is ending. And as soon as we say amen and Johnny dismisses you at the end, you're out. It's easy to come even to this church with all these people if you don't have to talk to them. You don't have to get to know them. So we plan our entrances and we scheme and pray for our exits. Or lastly, and what is very common in the West, is that you encounter people who challenge your patience, your gentleness, and your humility. And you stop going to church altogether. But Paul provides two boundaries to these temptations. Love and unity in the spirit. It's so important because Paul doesn't just say, get along for the sake of peace. He talks about unity in the spirit, in the bond of peace. It's really easy to be at peace with people when you don't know them. It's really easy to not be irritated when you refuse to encounter potential irritants. But what Paul's saying is that's not peace. It's not peace. You could call it something. You can't call it peace. It's fake peace. It's not rooted in anything. It is the absence of love, is what Paul is saying. And that's where he goes with this other thing. He says, uh, it is easy to run from those who might challenge your patience. But not only is that not peace, but that's not love. Love is being drawn to others because we see in others what Jesus saw in us. We see that their sins are no more impossible to deal with than our sins were before God. We see that we were not born any more nobler, any more fit for the church than they were because we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what we saw in Ephesians chapter 2. We see that they are no less part of God's church than you are, even if they have a different, live in a different part of town, make a different amount of income, or have a different skin color. You see, we are as a church by no means perfect. And we will always face those temptations 
to process the imperfections of the church in sinful ways. But we are being perfected by an infinitely wise God. And that shapes our encounters. That causes us to be long-suffering, to bear with one another, to carry each other's burdens. And there's this beautiful tension inside the church that would do well for all of us, myself included, and all of your elders included, to be mindful of. And that is that in one sense, this church is not at all the church it will one day be. When we get to Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is going to talk about this beautiful wedding day where the church is purified, washed of all of its spots and wrinkles and presented to Christ in beautiful splendor. You guys don't look like that this morning. And yet, this gathering, this same gathering whose dress is wrinkled and stained is also the closest to that glory we'll have here on earth. We are going to spend eternity in heaven together with people who are not like us, but who share faith in the one Lord with us. You see, there's something that is unique that is often hard to to grasp in Montana, where we live in one of the most beautiful parts of the country. And that is that the local gathering of believers actually displays the kingdom of God in a way that Glacier National Park cannot. There is a window into something far more beautiful here inside of these janky windowless walls than there is in Grand Teton. Because this is a glimpse into what one day will be without sin. But now we're called to deal with it even in brokenness. Gospel, the gospel unites ordinary and broken people together to each other by grace. And this is the miracle of the church, that we can overcome our differences because the gospel overcame our differences before God. And yet inside of this wonderful unity is also diversity. Paul is making both of these points simultaneously. And notice the unique way that Paul does this in verses 5 through 10. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Then he has this little aside. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? If Christ went up, he had to come down. He had to be incarnate. He had to be born of a virgin. And he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all in all. Did you catch Paul's clever wordplay here? He gets this cadence of singular ones, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and then he goes plural with the same one. He has given gifts to each one of us according to the measure of Christ. From singular to plural, now Paul takes this unity of faith and he shows inside of it the second point, that the church is diverse in gifts. Not only do we share a salvation, but inside of that salvation, we have diversity of gifts. And here we have something which I hope will comfort you today. And that's if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, whether it's been for a day or for a decade, Jesus has given you a gift of grace according to the measure his gift. There are lots of things which pop into our minds when we talk about spiritual gifts, and Paul is really narrowing it down to three specific things he wants us to understand here in this text. First is that Jesus has given each of his redeemed brothers and sisters a gift. In fact, Paul here quotes Psalm 68, where King David is singing this psalm of praise to God. David has gone out and he has conquered the Lord's enemies, and he comes back and he begins to offer gifts to God. David has delivered, but now he's offering gifts to God. And Paul looks at Psalm 68, and he sees what Jesus has done in fulfillment of this psalm. Jesus is the greater David who defeated enemies far greater than the Philistines. He defeated sin and death, and he's done that for you. Jesus has come to defeat enemies in your life that you cannot defeat on your own, nor can the government you hope in, nor can the money you treasure, nor can the person you love. Only Jesus can defeat those. But then he does something even better. He gives gifts to us. 
Jesus delivered us, and then he gave gifts to us. You see, wrapped up in your salvation are individual and specific gifts measured out, weighed by Jesus himself and given to you. Now, there's all sorts of time, words, books spent trying to create like an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. And if you're not careful, you can go online and you can pay lots of money for people to try to tell you what those gifts are. But if we look at scripture and how God generally interacts with us, here's a quick test to see where God might have gifted you. As you answer two questions, what are your passions and what are your skills? And where do those overlap? I'm super passionate about being a tight end in the NFL. I lack the skills to do that. And so we want to be realistic. Where do we have passion that God has given to us? And where do we have skills that God himself has given to us? And when we find where that intersects, now we take that and we ask ourselves a really serious question. And do this with your roommates or with your community group this week. Say, when I found this, how does this help me further the cause of the gospel? How does this help me serve the church? Because more times than not, these gifts that Jesus gave us don't come in like dropped from an owl from above into our hands, but it comes through what God has already gifted us with. And so we consider that, know that the passions and the skills that God has given you, he's given uniquely to you. He's given them to you because he loves you. And this is the second aspect Paul wants us to see, is not only has he given us gifts inside of our salvation, but each gift is measured out, Paul says, according to Christ's costly sacrifice. What that means is that we don't have to bemoan that our gift doesn't look like someone else's gift. We don't create these artificial hierarchy of gifts that equate to being more Christian than other people. Jesus has given you a gift based off of his capability, based off of his utility, based off of his beauty. And so we don't have like interstate souvenir gift shop Jesus handing out like trinkets to some people and gifts of great values to other who he thinks might be able to do more. There's nothing to be like, oh, you're going to be a chair stacker and you're just going to do, you're going to be great over here. You, on the other hand, you are going to be a prayer warrior. That doesn't happen. Whatever gift that God has given to you is tied to Jesus' costly sacrifice for you. It is wonderfully capable to change you. And this is where we need to understand that whatever Jesus has given us has come from the hand of the king himself. And there's no room for jealousy, for infighting, or for bickering about our gifts because it's all grace. It's all grace that Jesus has given to us. Lastly, Jesus gave gifts for a purpose. This is why he has that little aside about him ascending and descending. But it ends with this purpose statement. Why has Jesus descended? Why has he ascended? It says this, so that he might fill all things. In other words, Jesus' saving work in your life provides for you a purpose for all of your life. The whole of your life as a believer is to participate in the ongoing work of Christ as the church to subdue all things for Jesus. And this is important because this is a point Paul's been making a lot in the book of Ephesians. At the beginning, Paul talks about what's God's plan for all time. And look back at Ephesians 1, verses 9 through 10. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that's Jesus, things in heaven, and things on earth. So here is this crazy, ridiculous, I was helping my friend remodel a bathroom the other day. And there was a point where it clearly was made known to me and to him that he was looking to me for guidance. And I was like, this is not, you don't want to be in this room. What I can give to you is not, we can't get this done. We need help here. But what this verse is saying is that Jesus has given you infinite ability to do what he has called you to do in the church. God has this master plan for all of human history, and how is he going to get it done? By trusting us knuckleheads by grace. By giving us exactly what we need to do what Jesus has called us to do. 
You see, I want you to see this. This is so important. Jesus saved you on purpose and for a purpose. That's so important to understand. Jesus saved you on purpose and for a purpose. He saved you on purpose. This is the whole point of chapters 1 through 3. At the end of chapter 1, Paul goes out of his way to say all of the strength of the whole trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all of the strength is for the church. It is for you. And what we saw last week at the end of chapter 3, all of the love of God, all of his affection is poured out on us through Jesus Christ. All of the strength of God is for you. All of the love of God is for you. Meaning that salvation by God is intentionally measured for broken people. It's for you. Why should you believe the gospel? Not because it just makes sense. Not because it's maybe less costly or more shiny or has greater internal consistency in its argument than other faiths. You should believe the gospel because the gospel is the God of the universe's specific plan for your life given to you in love. This is for you to come and be changed by his grace. This is unique. If you're not a believer, if you're a believer who wrestles with understanding God's love for you, this has to be captured. You being saved is not a byproduct of God trying to reach some other goal. For instance, this week I was doing a plumbing project which I couldn't finish and couldn't complete, as we saw is I'm incapable of doing. And so I needed a PVC cap to leak or to seal something that shouldn't be unsealed. And so I went to the store to get this PVC cap and... The cap was $4, and I get to the checkout stand, and I realize that they have a credit card minimum of $5. I don't have any cash, and so it's kind of this, like, panic thing of, like, looking around this shop where I don't know what anything is in here or its value. I'm completely out of my element, and he's like, oh, we have this basket of candies. And I look into the basket, and I see a Reese's, and my wife loves Reese's chocolate. And I'm like, well, this worked out quite nicely, didn't it? <laughs> here I get exactly what I want. And my wife is able to think I'm an amazing husband. <laughs> but that is not at all like our salvation. Our salvation is not a sensible addition to God's plan for his glory. You see, as much as I do love my wife, it was not my love for her that sent me to that store to get the Reese's for her. It was sewage dripping into my house. <laughs> But central to God's salvation for you is his love for you. Salvation is where God's glory and God's love meets beautifully in the life of the individual. Where you are consumed by a glory greater than you and a love that is for you. Isn't that a great God? Who does that for us? He saves you on purpose. But it was also for a purpose. Salvation in Jesus Christ gives you a purpose for all of life. To use Paul's language here in this text when he's quoting Psalm 68, you were once a captive, but now you are recommissioned by a king and given a gift to do exactly what he has called you to do. In our world today, we're so quick to measure someone's value by their utility. Can you do this for me? Can you provide this for me? And if you can't, I'll find someone else who can. And we live under this fear of disappointment. But here we need no fear when we come to Jesus. Because Jesus has given us what he requires from us. He in love has equipped us to, con to increasingly work so that love might abound. You are no less capable to do what Jesus has called you to do than Jesus was capable of saving you. It is assured you are able to do it. He is wonderfully generous to give us gifts to do this work. And this work that Jesus gives us to do as the church can be done, whether you work at a tech company, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, or whether you're an elder at a local church. The gifts that are given according to the measure of Christ's gift is gifts given out of grace for grace. And so what is this gift? Isn't this important at this point? We see gifts. We see he's given us a gift. What are we doing with these gifts? Well, Paul defines it. Gifts are given so that we might work to become more and more like Christ. That's what we're going to see in just a second. This is so important because when it comes to how we measure ourselves as a Christian or as a church, 
Paul's saying that there's no standard, no measure, except for Jesus. Jesus is who we measure ourselves up against. That brings humility for those who feel they're succeeding in life. And it brings comfort to those who feel they're failing in life. We assess ourselves and we assess our church based off how we match up to who Jesus is by what Jesus has given to us. We are to daily grow up to be more like Christ. And the truth is, this is why we need the church. We need each other to do this. We need different tools. Paul uses the analogy of different body parts. We need it all. And this is Paul's final point today, is that the church is dependent in ministry. We are dependent upon each other to do what Jesus has called us to do. There's this unity, there's this diversity, and then there's diversity working together for the plans of God. Read with me Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so to show how dependent we are upon each other for the work of ministry, Paul does two things in this text. First, he defines ministers, and then he defines ministry. And in defining ministers, he starts where we would imagine. He starts with the historic leader, leaders of God's people. Parts of the gifts that God has given to his people include the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament. This is the third time in Ephesians where Paul has used this couplet, apostles and prophets, apostles and prophets, apostles and prophets. And each time he has done so, he's done it specifically to express the whole plan of God across the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because remember, Paul is trying to bridge this gap between Jews and Gentiles. And so in using those two things, he is marrying the whole of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. And so he speaks of apostles and prophets. Then he speaks of evangelists. And to be quite certain, theologians are uncertain of what it is he's talking about here. As an, an evangelist is like a Titus or a Timothy that he's writing to um, during this day, guys who are carrying on the work of the apostles. Is an evangelist someone who's specifically called to uh, frontier-style missions evangelism, like Philip? Is this evangelist just someone who is remarkably gifted by God to share the gospel with others? We're not sure, but God has given them to the church. And the church as a whole is called to share the gospel, to be evangelists. But then he goes on afterwards to describe pastors. And he does so by describing them as shepherds, which is the root word of pastor, and teachers. The role of local elders, the role of me and the rest of the eight elders here at this church is to shepherd God's flock and to teach God's flock. And when we think of ministry, these are typically whom we think of, right? We think of the bold heroes of the faith. We think of our local pastors. They do ministry. And indeed they do. And God will hold them account for their ministry. They will stand before God one day as to how they shepherded and how they taught their church. But what is their ministry? What is the sum of God's word and God's people over the course of history? You see that in verses 11 through 12? The sum is this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, which is all believers, not just special ones, all believers are saints, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The ministry of the leaders of God's church, the ministry of the labor of God's spirit, and the labor of the ministry of God's word and church is to equip you, dear Christian, for the work of gospel ministry. It is to make you a minister. It is the responsibility of pastors and missionaries 
to minister. But it is also the responsibility of the whole church, of the whole congregation, to be ministers or servants of one another for the sake of the gospel. Paul has this three-part kind of cadence. He says, you are called, you are gifted, and you are gathered so that you might build up the body of Christ around you. So that you might contribute not only to your own growth, but to the growth of those who are around you. And I think as a whole, there is a modern sense of discontent towards the church because we don't see or understand the church properly. We often see the church as more akin to a concert We come and gather together and we consume a product put on by trained professionals. And then during the week, we can kind of rep our fandom. We can share it on social media. We can get a sticker. We can invite people to come and see how cool and sweaty your pastor is. We can do all those things like we're marketing a product. But if this is how you view church, Paul's saying this might be why you're disappointed in church. This might be why you have a sense of discontent with church. Because Paul is making clear in God's holy scripture that the church is less like a concert and more like the world's greatest Zumba class. It's more like a gym. That we get to go and participate in something. You see, imagine if you brought your friend, you bought your friend a gift membership to a gym. You have a follow-up conversation with them. You say, hey, how's the swole sanctuary going? And they say, ah, it's all right. I don't really see what you people get out of it. You say, well, really, well, what's, what's going on? Like, well, I've been really faithful. Once a week for an hour and a half, I pull up a chair in the spinning class and I watch everyone else spin, but I'm really getting nothing out of it. But how many of us approach church that way? Where we come and we watch, but we don't participate. Paul is saying that ministry together as the church is people coming together to actually be built up to work out together for the sake of greater ministry, for greater strength in gospel ministry. When you come to church, you might not be on stage preaching, you might not be on stage praying, you might not be on stage singing, but the people who are on this stage or on this platform or whatever it is you want to call it, they are not worshiping for you, but they are leading participate, to wrestle with the weight of the gospel. In our songs, are you wrestling? Are you working out to articulate and understand what is being spoken? In the prayers, a.k.a. nap time that some of us do with the pastoral section, are we wrestling? Are we praying with them and for them? Or are we wishing that this would get over? In the sermon, are we waiting for funny stories that Tyler never has? Or are we saying, do I believe this? Is God's word saying this? Am I applying this? You see, the whole church is about participation in a bodily level at what is going on in the body of Christ. And so far, Paul has given a lot of things that go on when the body gathers. When the body gathers, the manifold wisdom of God is made known. When the body gathers, God is glorified in a way which is unique. And here Paul says, when the body gathers, believers are being equipped for ministry. And so Paul defines ministry by saying, you are a minister. So what is it that you do? What is the work of you, a church member, a congregant, a minister of the gospel? Well, now he defines ministry in verses 12 through 14. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." Ministry, Paul says, is building up of the body of Christ. Specifically, Paul says, in two areas. To grow up into unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Meaning that whatever gifts God has given you, this is the sphere in which they are to be practiced. Whatever gift God has given you, concurrent with your salvation, is meant to be used to help people have clarity 
on what they believe and to help people know relationally the Jesus in whom they have believed. Ministry, for Paul's shorthand, is this. Ministry is helping people with their doctrine and with their devotion, with what they believe and how it changes things. And Paul paints a realistic picture of what this looks like. When the church is just going guns ahead and the body's being built up and sin is being killed, this is what it looks like. There won't be spiritual children anymore. Immature will be growing. People who can't run a mile will be running half marathons. People who are messy will be getting cleaned up. People won't believe whatever false doctrine comes about. Whatever they hear at their, uh, in their philosophy classes on campus won't shake their faith. They won't be deceived by false teachers. There will be so much health and growth and stability. But he assumes that we don't live in that world. Because he immediately tells the church how to cope with people who are like that. And he equips us to deal with it. To live in a church that has a wonderful ideal, but lives in a world that is not yet the ideal. He fully admits that believers, you yourself included, can at times be immature, gullible, and vulnerable. And he says, this is why we have the church, so that we can help each other in that, so that we can continue to speak the truth in love and grow every way into Jesus, who is the head. You see, this is precisely why the church matters. We need all of this. A healthy church is not, in this world, just a church of mature believers. A healthy church is not, in this world, just a church of new believers. A healthy church is a church of believers from all different walks of life, calling each other to the measure of Christ to grow by grace more and more to be like him. You Regardless of who you are and where you are, if you have been saved by Jesus Christ, you are needed here. We need you to do what God has called us to do. And look at how essential this is, this group effort, as Paul closes this text in verses 15 through 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How many churches want love at the center of their ministry? We do. I raise my hand, show my sweat stains. Everybody wants love. But if you want a church built up in love, Paul says you must be a church built up in ministry. The greatest love we can share for one another is helping each other with our doctrine and with our devotion. It is walking alongside one another in this wonderful perpetual motion machine where times where our walk is failing, where we are not being conformed to Christ, but we are being conformed to the world and someone comes to us and they speak the truth in love. And now we get set back on track. And now when this individual is struggling, we get to go to them and we get to speak the truth in love. And what happens is where the body is weak, it is supplemented by those who are strong. And that is what the church is meant to do. That is what you are meant to do if you are a believer. Whether this is your church home or somewhere else is, you are called to come to church with a mindset of ministry. Because it is not only the hope of those who are out here, but it is your hope that your brothers and sisters in Christ would care for you. And so how do we apply this here at Sovereign Hope or here when you leave and go to wherever your church is? Three things straight from this text in closing is this. First, start speaking. Ministry for Paul starts with words. There are all sorts of times when I meet somebody new at church and there are two types of greeting. There's like the walk by head nod like, like that. And there's the, hey, nice to meet you. Is this your first time here? Both of them acknowledge the individual, but one of them is innately more relational, isn't it? One of them invites them into something. And so as believers, speak the truth in love starts with speaking. Speak more. Speak to people here. Speak to people at the park. Speak to people at the grocery store. Join a community group and speak to people who are there. Start speaking to people because it's impossible to do the next steps if we don't start speaking. Relationally open yourself up to people by turning off the introverted muscles, taking the headphones out of your ears, and realizing that we are a body for a reason. Second, 
Start speaking the truth. What is truth? Scripture is really broad. It could be where our lives are out of line with the gospel. But here, Paul's probably using it in the most narrow sense. Speaking the truth is speaking the gospel. The good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. And so as you start speaking to people, where is this truth showing up? How is it being presented to those who don't believe? How is it being used among those who do believe? And I challenge you this week to take one baby step, to have one conversation where you speak the truth of the gospel to someone else. It could be calling others in the church to wrestle with it, to help you understand it or to help them understand it, or it could be speaking the truth of the gospel to those who are outside of the church and encouraging them to see and believe what God has done for them. Start speaking the truth. And lastly, start speaking the truth in love. Where the first two are action points. This last one is a prayer point. We cannot make our hearts love others. But the salvation that God has given us transforms our dead hearts and makes it soft with compassion for others. Because the same love that saved us is the same love that compels us to those around us who are perishing. It's what compels us to bear with one another in love. We are called to share what we have experienced in the gospel. And the beautiful thing is, is that Jesus has equipped you to do just that. And in equipping you to do just that, he has equipped this church to effectively and beautifully do exactly what Jesus has called us to do. For the glory of God and for the good of those around us. So let us labor and measure up to the fullness of the stature of Christ because Jesus has given us good things. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you make us a church laboring for your glory. That you help us where our minds or our eyes or our hearts might be a little bit off-center of what it is you present salvation to do for us in the context of the church. That you would help us see those around us as blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ to whom we have a responsibility of ministry. We pray that as we minister to our brothers and sisters in the church, that it is the accelerant that propels us outside of the church or to those in the church who do not know the gospel, that we might have integrity in our love because we love those who share the family line of faith with us. Lord Jesus, we pray that we refuse to measure our church by any standard which is not Jesus that we might be to our members, to our city, and to our world a witness that shows the wisdom and glory of Jesus in a way where we as individuals cannot. May all of this be for your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.